0: Joining me for the Plant Yourself podcast, I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. So, what does improvisation have to do with living a healthy and happy life? As it turns out, pretty much everything. I mean, think about it how much of your life isn't improvised? Even when you're trying to plan ahead, like planning meals, prepping, going shopping, when you get home and it's time to eat, you're still dealing with tons of different variables. And when we think about navigating the world effectively, we're always having to make choices in the moment. And the improvisational arts of collaboration, of paying attention, of presence, all can be really helpful as we navigate all those uh, challenges. So today's guest, Steven Nachmanovich, is the author of a couple of amazing books. His most recent one that we talk about today is The Art of Is. He's also the author of a book from the nineteen nineties called Free Play which has become sort of a Bible for improvisers everywhere. And I was delighted when he accepted my invitation to talk about how improvisation can help us be happier and healthier people. So without further ado, Stephen Nachmanovich, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited for this this conversation, and I think I I, I want to start by asking you probably the most difficult question for an improviser, which is to introduce yourself, because that's probably the thing you have to do over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's sort
1: of, well, uh, the the way you put that reminds me of certain jokes about Alzheimer's disease where where you have to keep uh, introducing yourself and so forth, (laughs) (laughs) because in a sense, uh, um, an improviser um, uh, in one sense has no memory because uh, everything that you play is fresh in the moment uh, and is stimulated by what's going on in the moment. But on the other hand, you've got a three and a half billion year memory because you're a living organism, and everything that you play is uh, somehow predicated on those three and a half billion years of organic evolution that we all share, you know, and that's why we're able to communicate with each other without rehearsing or writing it down beforehand. That's why we're able to communicate with other living organisms, Uh, and um, so it's an interesting thing. So in my um, more mundane introduction, um, I'm a violinist, composer, writer, educator, Uh, I do multimedia art, um, visual music and all sorts of art forms. Um, I'm sitting here talking to you from a swivel chair and that's kind of the metaphor of my life, you know, is being on a swivel chair between between various forms of expression. Um, I started out um, thinking I was going to be an academic. I was interested in biology and then I was interested in psychology and that's where I got my degrees, um, psychology and anthropology, literature. Uh, I'd been uh, trained as a classical violinist as a kid But I always thought, even though I always loved music, I always thought that that would be uh, um, something to the side of my profession. And then in my twenties, I discovered improvisation and uh, discovered that much as I love composers, I didn't really need composers anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That they're a luxury, but not a necessity. Uh, Or that is that you yourself are the composer uh, and, uh, you know, creating and uh, performing are part of the same act. Uh, And I got involved in, I'm a violinist, I did uh, a lot of solo improv concerts. I did a lot of group concerts with other musicians, with dancers, collaborating with theater people. Uh, collaborating with uh, all kinds of people in different fields. And out of that work came two books. Um, My first book, Free Play, is 30 years old now and is still going strong. And uh, that is more about the inner and spiritual dimensions of the creative process and spontaneous creativity improvisation. And so forth. And the new book, The Art of Is, which just came out recently, is um, more about the external, social, collaborative, ethical dimensions of the creative process. Mm -hmm. So they make a kind of bookend.
0: Right. So I had not gotten to free play yet. I, I discovered you thanks to Audible saying, hey, here's some free books. And oh, great. <laughs> the Art of Is is just an amazing title. Thank you. In, in that, it, I mean, it, it's it's resonated with me and some of my friends. And also, I can't think of a less marketable thing, like someone waking up in the morning and going, I want to discover the Art of Is. <laughs> <laughs> so so i was I was intrigued, and I have to admit, I only finished the book yesterday, which is not how I like to do things. I like to give myself a week, and it's it's partly your fault because i I listen when I run, and every four or five minutes, you would say something that would make me realize I should not be listening to a book while i 'm running. <laughs> <laughs> So, so it's I kept nice
1: like, to do one thing at a time, isn't it? <laughs> I, mean,
0: I, I, feel, I feel so um, productive. Like, oh, I'm getting my exercise in, I'm getting some nature, getting some vitamin D in my skin, and I'm learning and preparing for my podcast. And you kept pointing, like, this run that I'm on, this step, that cow in the field, that breeze, like – like, it, 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 all, it kind of almost shamed me into presence. So it took me a really long time to, to finally finish. That's really great. Well, the longer you take to read it, the better, in a
1: sense, you know, because it really, you know, as you say, um, it is about presence and it is about seeing what's around you uh, because, uh, I mean, there's so many metaphors. Uh, improvising means Responding to what's in front of you. That is the art it is. Responding to the world as it is. Um, I mean, here we are living in a world of a pandemic and in a world of, you know, onrushing ecological catastrophes. And that is the world we live in. And all of our fantasies, imagining science fiction, music, whatever creative form we take um is still a response to what is and to who we are and to who we're with Mm -hmm. and it takes time to absorb that you know it takes time to you know i did have uh, one of the things that i uh frequently do like it feels like in the long past now when i used to travel and and do gigs and um I was teaching at a university in Canada. And one of the things I do a lot, of course, is just uh, encourage people to be aware of environmental sound. And, you know, there's the sound of the children playing outside, or there's the sound of the bathroom door closing on the second floor above you to your left, and the hum of the white fixtures, and all of the all of the sounds around us and we become the more we listen to sound and the more we hear where those sounds are coming from the more present we become in space and time and who we are and with our own body and the better we're able to spontaneously respond uh so then the um, professor whose class uh, I was a guest in then emailed me a couple weeks later saying that uh, that uh, basically the class has, uh, has now been really ruined because now everybody hears the sound of the utilities and the air conditioner in the wall behind where the blackboard is, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and now they hear everything and they can't unhear it. Uh And, you know, that's really, um, you know, it's annoying and it's a blessing, you know, when you have an interruption. We talk about interruptions as offers. So um, you can be a musician playing a piece of music that you may feel is very profound. And then the phone rings or there's a siren screeching outdoors and you can regard that as a terrible interruption that is ruining your experience. Um, or you can find it as a piece of information that you can build upon, and something that you can respond to, and that you can bring people into presence with that. And uh, you then discover sounds that you never thought you could make before.
0: Mm. Well, see, one, and you know, one of the things that had the biggest impact on me of the book, and again, you know, I, I, you're right. It's a good thing that I've had to have it titrated over over three weeks to kind of let it sink in. Is I realized the extent to which I brace myself mm. <laughs> just on a global. Well, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll uh, open up the news, and I'm already braced yeah. for the latest catastrophe, right? So I'll brace myself for bad weather when I'm going out for a run. Um, I'll brace myself Professionally for a hard day's work or an or an email critical of of a piece of of work that i've done, and you know the the examples that you give in the book really sort of build from sort of the basics of yes and and of simply playing with offers and things like you know noises and smells and and then ultimately to like the most global issues of you know, concentration camps and global warming, and like the you know the idea that um, so when you know in my twenties I I spent a bit of time in therapy, and I remember the poem on my therapist's bathroom wall just above the toilet, and it was it was a rendition of a of a Taoist saying: "Those who flow as life flows know they need no." other choice they feel no wear they feel no tear um they need no mending no repair Mm. and like you know it was beautiful and i'd go back into therapy after emptying my bladder and (laughs) you know contemplated for a couple minutes but like your book really showed me that like oh a way in to that kind of relationship with life which can feel you know feel again bracing like this year in particular has felt like uh like i like i want what i want i have all my preferences and then there's a whole bunch on the other side of all this stuff that i no thank you i don't want that and to be reminded that saying yes to everything opens up possibilities and it's it's a far more psychologically healthy and happy place to be
1: yeah uh well you don't necessarily need to say yes to everything <laughs> I mean, there are some things that we do have to refuse, and um, but um, you can refuse them, knowing what what you are and who you are and why you're refusing, and your refusal can still be a response. I mean, when you mentioned saying yes to everything, you know, there's certain there are certain things that. Uh, that people want to put you through that you have to say no way Mm -hmm. Um, but the way in which you say no way I mean the very um, the very last page of my book is about an attempted sexual assault Mm -hmm. and um, the nun uh, medieval Japanese nun Shotaku is uh uh, in the, in 1330-something, is, uh, you know, walking from Dokusan with her, with her Roshi, with her teacher, uh, and, uh, she's the widow of a general who died several years earlier, and she became a Zen student after that, and later became abbess of a very, very important temple in Kamakura, which was a, um, which, for centuries, was a um, refuge for battered women, and um, which was rare in Japan, I can tell you. Mm. Um, so the story that I end the book with is that she um, she's walking through the woods at night, back from the teacher's hut, and uh, a man with a sword comes out of the bushes and. He's attracted to her and he tries to rape her and he threatens her with his sword. And all she has with her is a piece of paper in her sleeve that she rolls up into a fake sword and screams at him with this enormous shout. And there's such ferocity to her her gesture that the guy drops his sword and he runs away into the woods. And the koan that became associated with her gesture says, "Produce this paper sword, which is the heart sword, and prove its actual effect now." So there's an act, you know, in uh, in theater improv, they love to talk about yes and, and so much of um, whether it be theater, music, or any field in daily life conversation has to do with really listening to people and accepting what's happening and responding and adding something to it. Um, But here's an an improvisational act of great refusal Mm -hmm. that was so powerful because his threat to her did not stop her from being a responsive, spontaneous human being.
0: Right. And and that's, you know, what I get when in when you after you finish the story of, of Herbert Zipper, and then you talk about um something that touched me very deeply, like climate change. Like it seems when you read the news, we've already lost. Yeah. Right. And to say that, you know, and this, this guy who was composing music in Dachau and Buchenwald concentration camps in and and playing in an ensemble where most of them knew they probably wouldn't get out alive yeah. like if that's if they can do that who am I to throw up my hands and say there's nothing I can do here and it was exactly. it was just exactly. so powerful
1: exactly
0: um so one like the, the the first reason I wanted to have this conversation you know I'm I'm a teacher about health and health habits and health behaviors. And as I was listening, it occurred to me that there's so much uh, wisdom in your approach that we can apply to Mm. self-regulation in response to the world. But I also didn't want to turn this into like improv becomes a tool like you know like go into a business and teach improv to the middle managers so they can make yeah. more money and yeah. i didn't want to turn it into improv into how i can improve my diet but yet i do Which kind of you i do kind of want to go there but i want to <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to sacrifice yeah. the the bigger picture
1: yeah well that i mean what you you just brought up a whole lot of issues that are all intertwined, and it's really, it's really great that you mentioned that. Um, first of all, when you talk about self-regulation, um, I'm a violinist, so the violin is a very analog instrument. Um, you know, digital and analog. Digital means, uh, like in the background here, there's a, there's a piano keyboard. So a piano, from the point of view of pitch selection, is a digital instrument. You're either playing an A or you're playing the B-flat next to it, but there's nothing in the crack in between. Okay, Or in a computer, there's a 1 or a 0, and there's nothing in between. Um, In the violin, in the double bass, in your vocal cords, uh, you're continuously sliding up and down a string. And intonation is a matter of sliding, finding a place, and very rapidly correcting yourself, you know. (laughs) Uh, And uh, if you've practiced a lot, you know, those corrections become inaudible and invisible. And um, let's say in a more mundane thing, In a more mundane example, we're all driving cars and you're constantly wiggling the steering wheel right and left and right and left. Your purpose is to go straight, but because of all the variations in the wheels of the car and in the shape of the road and the wind and everything else, the car is always minutely swerving to the right or to the left, and so you compensate by correcting, you know, the, the, um, the science of cybernetics, which, uh, uh, of course, now that word is kind of, uh, it connotes robots or something like that. But um, it was the, um, how living systems and certain kinds of artificial systems can self-correct by feedback. Mm. And it's from the old Greek word for steersman. You know, you're steering the rudder of the boat right and left and right and left. Now, when you're driving your car, you aren't constantly slapping yourself in the face and punishing yourself because, oh, I was too far over to the left. Now I've got to wiggle the wheel to the right. Oops, now I'm a little too far to the right and I've got to wiggle the wheel to the left. You know, you're just constantly smoothly self-correcting and moving the wheel back and forth. So that you can go in a straight line, and that's steersmanship. That's self-correction. That's what your blood temperature does, as it wavers above and below ninety-eight point six Fahrenheit or 30, thirty-seven centigrade. It's what all of the uh, when you talk about health. I mean, all of the very vari- all, all of the variables that are constantly shifting and changing in your body are engaged in constant feedback so that they can be fairly close to optimal levels but they're always a little bit above or below and always self-correcting so our body is a vast system of self-correcting systems which some some of them of course get out of whack and Mm -hmm. then you're in trouble and then you have to do big corrections Um, and you know this is a this is the fundamental nature of improv because you're hearing something and you're responding to it and you're hearing something and you're responding to it and you realize you realize that what i did before or what my partner need bef- did before needs a little bit of this and now it needs a little bit of that and now we want to go softer now we want to go louder all these kinds of constant uh, analog self-correction now the other part of what you addressed uh about improv as a tool um that's something that i very much relate to because uh we live in a very utilitarian society i noticed over your left shoulder i see the word play written up on the board above your Uh and um you know, our society, uh, certainly since the rise of the Protestant ethic and capitalism uh, has been, um, but of course before that also, has been so geared towards utilitarian purposes. And, you know, there's that preacher who invented that horrifying phrase, the purpose-driven life, mm. uh, <laughs> turned out to be a big money maker, And... Uh, you know, the idea that um, we have to justify play because it improves kids' cognitive development so that they'll better get better grades in school, you know, or music education. Uh, when I was a child in Los Angeles in the LA Unified School District, every single school in LA, rich or poor, had two art teachers and two music teachers. Mm and of course those days are long gone and uh for many many years now uh music educators art, art educators yeah. art educators have had to justify their existence by saying you know well music uh uh playing music uh makes you makes kids uh more cognitively adept and they'll get better grades and the implication that's unspoken beyond that is that you'll get better grades so that you get into a better uh, high school so that you get into a better college so that you'll get a better job and make more money. And um, so somehow play is associated with the money reward at the end of the reign Yeah,
0: I, I remember uh, reading, uh, I think what John Holt was writing about um, John Dewey saying there's a big difference between playing you know, this little piggy went to market with your baby, and engaging in tactile stimulation of digits, yeah. <laughs> right? Like as a as a strategy to yeah. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. So I think it's I think it's a shame that we have to um, justify art or justify play or justify music, which in fact the thing that makes play play is that it's self-existent. You know, you don't um, play in order to be able to have enough money to eat. You get enough money to eat so that you can play, you know, and play music, art, love, sport, all of these things that people engage in for love. These are the uh, purposes of life. And everybody prefers uh, different forms, you know, Uh, 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 the kind of music or play or sport that I like may not be what you like, you know, but everybody loves doing something. And everybody loves to enjoy the, the pleasure of watching other people
0: do it well. And that's why we live. So, so let me ask you more specifically about the, the cybernetics, since you have a background in biology and psychology, as well as music and other expressive arts so when i'm driving my car i get instantaneous feedback that helps me steer so i don't have to think about it or i don't have to hit a pedestrian or a curb before i you know i mean yeah. you know if i'm driving at two in the morning and i'm exhausted i might have to like go over the grill lines to be woken up to like oh i should head back um in in other arenas, so, like, I'm, I'm also, um, you know, I was a child violinist. And, like, I remember trying to hit, what was it? Da, da, da. Might have been an F or F sharp for Chardash. Uh-huh. Da, 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 and how many months I was and just not get it, not get it, not get it. And the more I didn't get it, it wasn't like I was getting better the way I would with, like, playing basketball or a sport, every time I missed, I would get more and more frustrated and tense and upset. So I wasn't open to the feedback because of the state I was in of achieving and performing. Um, And then also when people, you know, make bad food choices or lifestyle choices that don't serve them, well, the feedback in the moment is very delicious. Right. Yeah. So, how do you think about applying principles of play and improv and accepting offers? You know, when there's that, there can be that time delay where cybernetics is 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 interfered with.
1: Yeah. I. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, well, as with all of your questions, it's a great twenty-five questions all rolled into yeah. one. <laughs> So, uh, first of all, when you're talking about learning Chardosh as a child and missing that high F sharp, and um, so then what happens, of, of course, is you keep trying and you keep trying, and what you're doing is practicing your mistakes. Now, of course, it's not always clear what a mistake is, but let's say in this case we know what a mistake is, and you keep practicing it. You know, what, I realized it you was
0: know, it was an A. It was an A. Yeah, whatever it was. It was the... <laughs>
1: and um, you know, so I think the advantage of improvising is that um, when you're playing a score, of course, there are many musicians who are you know, wonderfully adept at picking up any score of anything and reading it and playing it right away. But the advantage of improvising is that rather than making that huge leap that you keep missing, you can make a different leap, you know. You might make a smaller leap that is very satisfying, and having done that, you can make a bigger leap that is also satisfying, you know. And you're not trying to play a score, you're starting from where you are. You know, once again, the art of is, you're starting from where you is. <laughs> and you're gradually increasing the range of the pitches that you can stretch to comfortably. With that feeling of accuracy, and by accuracy we mean that it resonates. You know that you play it. If you play a tone that's that's in tune, it's making the wood of the instrument resonate, and it's making the room resonate, and your body resonate. So you have those multiple senses of feedback that are going on. Uh, so with improvising, you rather than have some goal set for you by the composer of the score or by the teacher. Um, you get there from where you is. Um, the other thing about, uh, the long, um, chains of feedback, you know, that aren't, you know, as you say, if you're driving your, um, you are getting immediate feedback on where you're going and where you need to change and how to shift and so forth. And that's also true of playing music. If you're playing music attentively or doing a sport attentively, uh, you can you get all these feedbacks usually from multiple different senses uh, and you can adjust as you go. Um, I've had the experience... Uh, Okay, so Free Play, my first book, I'm sure the thing, if I live long enough, uh, I'm sure I'll have this experience with the new book as well, but with Free Play, which I wrote throughout the 1980s, and it was published in 1990, and then um, it started getting a lot of translations in foreign languages beginning 25 years after it was published. Um, And... uh, There I was a few years ago, sitting in Japan, where the new Japanese translation had come out. And um, I was getting feedback from people on words that I had written 35 years before. And it's (laughs) really, really, you know, it is a wonderful feeling to have been, you know, sitting and struggling with those words. 35 years ago. And then today, you know, it gets fed back at you from someone in Japan. Uh, And, uh, you know, those long, long, long feedback loops are very satisfying. But in the meantime, during the 35 years, you know, you, um, you need to feed yourself with experiences that exercise your art and give you a sense of immediate uh, understanding of what you're doing you know yeah, and I sometimes it. of course people will do will get very very discouraged because they aren't getting the feedback and then if you live long enough the 35 years rolled around and lo and behold uh, you got it. You know, back to the example of traffic, uh, close to the beginning of The Art of is, I give another traffic example. Uh, you know, when we're talking about steering the car, you are in this sort of intimate sensory relationship with your, uh, with the car, with the steering wheel, with your feet on the pedals, with everything around you. But driving on the freeway, Uh, in traffic. You're also involved in this improvisational social dance with other people. Uh, If you're on stage as an actor or as a musician, you may be looking into the eyes of your partner and uh, seeing their body language and getting immediate feedback about what's going on and how they're responding. Uh, In the case of people driving other cars, you're not looking into their eyes. Eyes. You usually don't see them at all. All you're seeing is these large, blunt-nosed, fast-moving objects, and they're only communicating with each other by changes in momentum. And yet we somehow successfully use that feedback. So there are some accidents, but most of the time we don't get into accidents, and we're able to do this very... Complicated many body
0: problem mm.
1: dancing in the freeway.
0: And that's such an interesting example of analog versus digital now that we're having self driving cars that are mm. going to be algorithmically driven. And I mean, that's fascinating because, like, when I read that it totally changed how I thought about communicating in a vehicle. Cause what I had thought about, like the only ways I communicated in a vehicle are with my horn or my, the eloquence of my middle finger. <laughs> and what I realized after reading the art of is, is that those are both the results of failures of primary forms of communication, which is sort of motion and angle. Yeah. Uh, you know, that I that, yeah. I that that is that me driving is a form of communication before right. i have to uh you know become explicitly upset with someone that's right <laughs> um, so what um one of the things I was thinking about in terms of like, OK, so if I eat a piece of chocolate cake now, I'll feel good now. But maybe in an hour or a week or a year or 10 years, it will have some sort of negative consequence that it's hard for me to think about is your description of the organ playing John Cage's 600 year long composition. Yeah. Can you talk about that? That was, <laughs> that blew my mind. <laughs> Uh, One of the things that I
1: like about thinking about this stuff is that, you know, we think about improvisation or whatever you want to call it, spontaneous creativity as, uh, you know, this sort of intimate millisecond by millisecond thing. But um, just as your three and a half billion years of experience as a member of organic evolution, is really, you know, it's a very long business. Um, I mean, Cage had this wonderful um, relationship to time, you know. There was like the respect for the immediacy of the external noise that was coming in. Uh, But he also wrote uh, pieces that were very, very long. And in the case of... uh, this piece is called "As Slow as Possible," and it lasts for 639 years. It was—it's uh, um, uh, about uh, uh, a little bit less than 20 years into into its execution. And there a been a little. Um, uh, there's a church in uh, Halberstadt in Germany uh, that has a specially built organ that was uh, constructed for. Um, playing this piece and every few years you know the the score calls for somebody to uh, you know change to shift a lever that begins the playing of the next chord and um, have you been there no I have not been there I would (laughs) love to go that would be really awesome but the the sense of operating over very very long periods of time and being sensitive to it in an improvisational way. You know, and by improvisation, I don't mean being uh, fast or clever. I mean being aware of your environment, which is also very slowly changing. It's changing at all different speeds. I'm living here in the forest in Virginia. This year, my big creative project has been... uh, an album of music that I played with the local birds. Since I can't, quote, go anywhere, uh, (laughs) I go on walks in the woods and I've been collecting um, bird song on a recorder and then bring it into the studio and add violins and other things to it. Uh, So I just released an album called Hermitage of Thrushes. So the interesting thing about the birds is that uh, songbirds average about 450 heartbeats per minute? We average about 80, plus or minus. Hummingbirds apparently are like a thousand beats per minute, which is, you know, hard to believe. Um, but meanwhile, there's the trees out there, which are also sentient beings operating at a very, very different time scale, you know. And if it happens that there's no sequoias where I live, but, you know, then you're talking about organisms that are operating at a thousand-year time scale. Um, And so you have organisms that operate at all different scales of time, all of which manage to occupy the same planet in an interactive system. And that's really fascinating. And um, certainly Cage's piece is one of many projects where people have attempted to uh, be aware of, uh, you know, there's something called the Long Now Foundation, you know, be aware of the long now, the present, that lasts for a very, very long time. And can you be improvisationally sensitive to very, very gradual changes. Climate change is no longer, unfortunately, a very, very gradual change. We're, we're aware of it, you know, more um, intimately and disastrously every year because we didn't choose, you know, you talk about the person who keeps stuffing themselves with too much chocolate cake and it may take 10 years for them to really feel the consequences of that you know that's kind of what has happened to us with climate change and so to be sensitized to the very quick and the very long distance changes is really important
0: right so, so something i've been playing with as a theory since being enmeshed in the art of is is the idea so you know, like sensitivity to your environment being being fully present for it. Um, I'm wondering if anyone could like really mess themselves up from that place. Like, like the, the, like when I talk to people about, oh, I binged on, I ate a sleeve of Oreos or I I ate, you know, I I went and got ham, you know, McDonald's or something and they ate it all up. They think they're doing it for pleasure, (laughs) but um, like, (sighs) like, Uh, I'm going I'm to continue to ask 30 questions in one because this just reminded me of something else I thought was just was just brilliant in, in the book that I actually stopped and made a note on my phone to remember it is like the thing that came to me. And I don't remember what you were what you know, the, the narrator Robertson Dean amazing voice was saying is great. Um, while, while I did it, but it was that the problem for people who are binging isn't a lack of self control, but too much self control. Because they're trying to control every aspect of their experience in the moment. And if it's if I'm not feeling the way I want to feel, then I can fix it with a drink, some sugar, a cigarette. Yeah. Um, So I guess like like could, you know, could be an improvisational mindset and set of practices be all that we need to free ourselves from uh, obsessive, self-destructive behavior. Uh, I don't know if it's
1: all that we need, but it can help. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Uh, But yeah, when you talk about um, feeling discomfort and that you have to fix it right away with a dose of whatever it is that you may then become addicted to. Um, I mean, part of... um, Part of this mindset that we're talking about, the improvisational mindset, is being comfortable, is learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, uh, I mean, people—if you're on stage as a musician, actor, dancer, speaker, whatever—you're on the spot. You know, and sometimes you have nothing to say. <laughs> And having nothing to say can be wonderful because it can introduce pauses in your speech rather than having to fill it up all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, teachers um, are under so much pressure to have the syllabus filled out for the whole next year of what they're going to do in class every five minutes in order to justify the existence of education. Again, you know, back to the utilitarian, money-oriented mindset of our society. Um, and in fact, having silence, having nothing to say, being uncomfortable in the classroom And allowing the child, adult, whoever the participant in the classroom to be quiet and to wait until there's something to say and to experience that discomfort is great. You know, discomfort is great because that's where all creativity comes from.
0: Which and uh, which brings up an, another issue. I think that people have a lot of confusion about or difficulty about in t- the people that I coach who are trying to like improve their lifestyle. Is it feels like there's a big um, tension, a, a, an either or, between spontaneity and being and planned. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought that way too until I, I heard you talking about the Japanese tea ceremony.
1: Yeah, which, it's
0: like like it's it's both. Right. It's incredibly like ritualistically planned. And it also has tremendous room for maybe not like not improvisation in terms of, well, I'm going to do something different. But but in subtle ways, going to be malleable to the experience of the now.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, one of the one
1: statement that I came across after the book was published which I would have loved to have included in it. There's a chapter called Verbs and Nouns uh, where I talk about stamping out nouns, which was Mm. a favorite phrase of my teacher, Gregory Bateson, and um, to come closer to being a verb in continuous process. Um, Weirdly enough, in that uh, chapter, I quote a Republican president who started as a general ulysses s grant but then this quote that came to me later after i published the book was from another general who became a republican president dwight eisenhower and in 1950 whatever it was when eisenhower was president and he came to give a speech at a war college he said that um Plans are worthless. Planning is everything. Mm -hmm. And he pointed out that, um, you know, what you're planning for, especially if you're in the military, but it doesn't matter what field you're in, um, what you're planning for, of course, is going to be an emergency. And an emergency, by definition, is something that you cannot predict. And so any plan that you make is going to be worthless when the emergency happens. On the other hand, planning, which is an ongoing activity, which is practice, you know, to try to plan for things even though you know that the plans will never be appropriate to the exact thing that happens, makes your mind flexible and uh, makes your chops flexible and so you are able to respond in the moment because you have spent time planning rather than sticking to your plans.
0: Mm. Yeah. And, and, um, and I love how you put it at one point that like, I can't remember the exact phrase, but this spoke to me as someone like i for the last two weeks, I've been improvising on the violin and just like playing with it and having oh, nice. a lot of fun that the, all my practice is, Is not to prepare the piece, but to prepare me some some, something something like that was like that. I am. I am the product of the preparation and not anything external to myself.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Uh, Right. Because I get people who are like, well, I I don't know what I'm going to want to eat for dinner in three days like they're at the supermarket trying to make good decisions and they'll say well you know i can't be pinned down i need to be spontaneous and that th- that perceived need for spontaneity me it plays out that they're continually making last minute bad choices <laughs> according to their own priorities right because of this um Oh, allergy to making plans. Yeah. And I thought there's, there's something in, in, in the way you talk about that, that can, can destroy that binary.
1: That's right. Uh, All binaries need to be destroyed. That's, (laughs) that's part of it. I mean, also when you imagine, when you're talking about the supermarket, um, uh, you're at the supermarket and, uh, You may have uh, what you need for dinner tonight. And then three nights later, you have leftovers of four different meals that are sitting around in the refrigerator. And um, you find, and especially in the time of pandemic, when you don't go to the supermarket all the time, you find yourself combining those ingredients into something really interesting and innovative. You know, you find yourself improvisationally inventing dishes Mm. out of those leavings that are really, really quite interesting I which you would never have been (laughs) able to actually think up a recipe before you're just throwing things together and finding, hmm, this tastes interesting. I'll do a little more of that.
0: right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the the joy of the the power of constraint. Yeah. Right. Like there was another quote about like, you know, having 360 degrees of freedom is, uh, is paralyzing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so something else I wanted to talk to you about in terms of, like, towards the end, things get really heavy about, like, what we're going to face in life, like the yeah. inevitability of, um, well, what, what is mistranslated as suffering, but as, you know, sort of attachment to form. Um, and Herbert Zipper's fascination with his own um, lung cancer um, and his fascination with the experience of, of, uh, of being a slave in a concentration camp. And then, and then the, the, the lighter version of that was um, your take on uh, Sixto Rodriguez uh, of Sugar Man. And, I, and I'd known about it because my wife is South African, Oh. And and we met in London in 1989, and like I I wasn't a very hip person. Like I you know I knew like the Beatles and but I didn't know you know Depeche Mode or or the Eurythmics. I wasn't like. Oh. And then she mentioned this guy Sixto Rodriguez, who and she couldn't understand why I had never heard of him yeah. because he's <laughs> the most famous musician in the world, and I just I just put it down to. You know, I'm kind of a nerd and I like classical music and 60s folk rock. And I wasn't very. And then to discover only like we then to discover when the movie came out, Searching for Sugar Man. Um, but I, I love your take on you know, the equanimity of this man who was fine with being a day laborer in Detroit and being an international rock star. In South Africa and being able to navigate both worlds with, with a sort of a shrug of the shoulders.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a remarkable story.
0: And, you know, I, so do you have um, suggestions for how I can get that? Because I can feel myself getting so attached to form. To this is how the way this is how it should be. To that's the A I'm playing on Chardash from from when I was little to like these forms that correspond to you know treats and goodies, uh, in, in, in that um, in that very utilitarian sense. Like, what are some practices that we can do in our daily lives that are maybe informed by improvisation that can help us loosen? So that we can, you know, we can say, you know, you may be right, like that Zen story about the, you know, continually changing conditions, or just to, you know, to, to not be so upset when things don't go our way, in yeah. quotes.
1: Yeah. Well, things very seldom go our way. <laughs> 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 and so sitting with that or walking with that, I mean, that's a, pra- you know, simply... um being aware of the world you know i mean meditative practice is great because to be able to sit on the cushion for a period of time with the body you have and with the mind that you have and with the world that we have around us um, and not go anywhere not try to do anything about it is really a very valuable practice you know, um, to be able to, um, you know, and the the the, the meditative um, practices can be extended, of course, into every moment. Theoretically, of course, every one of us, no matter how um, how much practice we have, is going to get caught up in the alarms and the emergencies and the freakouts. Uh, that uh, that uh, we create for ourselves, or that the world helps us create, um, but to just know that you're when you're sitting on a cushion, you're following your breath. But also when you're at the grocery store, you can also be following your breath. Mm. And you could just have one moment when you remember to just breathe and do nothing. You can have moments at home when you just sit at the table and draw. You don't have to be a professional artist You know how to draw anything quote good unquote. Um, but you can sit at the table and draw. You can sit at the table and write something. It doesn't have to be good, you can crumple it up and throw it away afterwards. That's you know, you can crumple it up in a really interesting way. You know, <laughs> For the garbage can across the street, and you know, test your basket shooting abilities, um, but to um, to take time out to breathe is really great. Um, I like to say that uh, probably the most interesting and valuable sociopolitical invention of the last four thousand years was the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take a day, it doesn't matter whether it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or it doesn't matter if it's a half a day or however you do it, and whether you associate it with a ritual or not, but to take time when you are able to do nothing and take in what's around you. And When you're that quiet, you're also able to examine your reactions, you know, your reactions or your responses. Um, So when you're an improviser, of course, your responses are, you know, they may be very quick and they may be um, predicated on, you know, this great sensitivity to what's happening around you. But to slow down that process and just have an experience, have a sensory experience, and get the sound of it the sight of it the smell of it the touch of it the taste of it the imagination of it and wait long enough to have a real response
0: and maybe that takes an hour Mm. all right and 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 to then be willing to discern a real response from all the fake responses or the the programmed conditioned responses that that maybe that aren't authentically us
1: yeah
0: right it's that that inhibition allows us to learn yeah yeah it's like a while back i i was learning juggling and what I discovered was three balls was easy. Yeah. And then trying to go more than that, three my ability to do three balls was the thing that was stopping me. Right. So okay. that I I actually had to learn how to inhibit things that were working. Yes. In order to get something right. that worked better. Yeah, in
1: Alexander technique, um uh Alexander talked about inhibition a lot. You know that's a that's a that's a very powerful word. You know, we often think of inhibition as being uh, negative, but um, to really, uh, to notice the kind of movement you're making. And then not do it.
0: Mm. And that that was my, yesterday, I was doing some fiddle improv and that's what I kept noticing. That as soon as I liked what was happening, I started to become attached to it. So I was like, "Oh, yeah. I'm just I'm just going up and down uh, D, A, and E strings pentatonically because that feels so safe." Yeah. And then, I, I, I consciously, all right, let me try an F, an F sharp here, right. and I'm aware that like my, my wife is at the other room, and she, might think, oh, that wasn't as good. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> Like, well, like,
1: the thing about the F sharp is that um, the first time you do it, if you're doing it in the context of the notes that you played, um, it sounds the F sharp sounds like a mistake. Uh huh. So then you repeat it, <laughs> and then you repeat it a third time, and then the third time that you do it it has now become a new new pattern that you integrate with the old pattern. Mm. So, you know, this is one of the things, uh, I mean, you may, uh, I mean, there are real mistakes in the world and you may decide, well, that was really no good. I'm never going to do that again, you know. But very often, if it's a matter of just extending your, your skill in some way and now you play an F sharp in the context of Cs, Ds, and As, um, those, uh, uh, you're now extending your tonal palette. And what sounds like a mistake the first time becomes the new pattern. And the nice thing is that the new pattern integrates with the old pattern.
0: Mm. And I and I love the idea of doing it like I'm in my home, in my living room playing violin. Like the stakes are actually really low. Right. And but it's a way for me to practice developing a relationship with mistakes that I can then apply. Like, you know, like there are places where a mistake is serious or deadly or unrecoverable from. And yeah. if if those are the only places that I have experience with mistakes, mm-hmm. I'm either going to be reckless or, or overly cautious. Yeah. Like to to find places where like I'm on, a, I'm on an old man's Frisbee team and in the, in the old days when we could actually play against other teams, our cheer before each game was the stakes couldn't be lower. Great. Right. Which like, so look, looking for opportunity where the stakes couldn't be lower, because even though they're like the, the stakes were low, it's still like I still had a little like adrenaline shot of embarrassment mm-hmm. at having having hit, you know, a note that I thought is a mistake. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'll give you one, actually, in that, uh, I know we're coming to the end of this hour, uh, but let me give you one more uh, practice uh, that relates to that, um, that I do with a lot of, well, people in all different art forms, and that's to make one-minute pieces. Mm. Because people are often uh, inhibited or terrified by the idea of improvisation or creativity and in fact if i go to a uni- I go to a lot of universities and music schools and other other institutions and of course in order to uh, if you're going to have a a a um, event in auditorium a at 3 p.m. you have to put something on the poster that announces that event so I'm sort of stuck with having a label on it in that sense. But once I get people in the room, I hardly ever talk about improvisation. And in fact, I hardly talk about anything at all because we're all there together. Uh, and, um, but one thing I have people do is one-minute pieces because a minute is such a short period of time in our minds that it's really non-inhibiting and the stakes are very, very low But a minute is also a period where your short-term memory is operating so that you can remember in second number 50, you could remember what you did at 10 seconds. And so you can actually do something structurally connected to it so you can complete the piece. Mm. So you can actually make a complete piece with a beginning, a middle, and an end. That lasts no more than one minute and it's very satisfying and because the stakes are low everybody can do it everybody yeah. can do it and in fact you know the uh, 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 Anton Webern one of the uh, really innovative composers in the early 20th century you know he did uh, many pieces that were like 45 seconds long or something you know so you can really say a lot hmm in a and it's not intimidating and you can do in a half an hour you know you and a partner can do 21 minute pieces right and now and now we can upload them all to tiktok you can upload them to tiktok or you can decide that 18 of them sucked <laughs> and you delete them But two of them were really good and you upload those
0: Right. You get get a highlights reel.
1: And you've still still created, even if you throw out a lot of things, you've still created more than you probably could than if you sat down with a pencil and paper and scratched your head and tried to compose it carefully.
0: Mm, I love it. I love it. Well, St- Stephen, thank you so much. This is, you know, the book has made such an impact on my personal life and my practice. And and like like improv, like that's not why I went, that's not why, why I listened to the audio book. I wasn't trying to get better at anything. It just seemed, <laughs> you know, I was playing. And uh, so... I, I want to thank you for, for the work you've done in the world. Well, one, one, last, one, one last question. Um, this might be hard for an improviser, but I t- I'd like to ask my guests some piece of music or a band or a composer that you're listening to now the, that most people haven't heard of. Hun or two.
1: Hmm? Hun or Hun or two. How do you spell that? is a very Tuvan throat singing band. Okay. They're really hilarious and really great. And, you know, these are the, as in Mongolia and Tibet and other places in Central Asia, you know, they're able to do, you know, to each singer is able to sing the, son- the sound plus the overtones plus the undertones. And it's really, really
0: <laughs> i i tried that once i got one overtone and then i couldn't talk for two weeks there you go <laughs> awesome I'll, I'll uh i'll find some links and throw that up so steven again thank you so much for the work you do and thank you so much for your time today thank you it was great to hang out with you okay be well All right. So I encourage you to check out the show notes for today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 444 to you can watch those um, Tuvan throat singers perform. I got a, a link to a YouTube video. We have links to Stephen's books, to a documentary about Herbert Zipper. Um, I've got some footage of the John Cage as slow as possible piece and some other stuff as well. All right, what's going on? So in movement news, I joined a gym. I joined John Heinz Monkey Bar Gym online. So if you go to monkeybargym.com, you can check it out. I've done two workouts so far. They have kicked my ass, and it's really fun. I I always thought that, you know, Zoom um, fitness workouts would be really not very much fun and hard to do, but the way they've set it up, I actually get a lot more attention. It's like, uh, you know, the instructors are watching everybody on the screen so they can point out your mistakes or form corrections you need to make immediately rather than working with one person and you might be doing a incorrect down dog for half an hour before someone comes around. So I'm really enjoying it. If you would like to get into Amazing Shape, check out monkeybargym.com. Maybe I'll see you in some of those uh, live zoom workouts this is not a paid advertisement um, of any kind i studied with john about 15 years ago i have a level one cnt uh, certified natural trainer and it really is amazing stuff so uh, as i'm healing from various running things um, playing frisbee on the weekend i'm going to be healing my body through um, alignment stability strength and power workouts Uh, In garden news, we uh, picked a little bit of thyme yesterday, and Mia went and planted a bunch of little baby onions, which hopefully will grow into great big onions. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. And, of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, The Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Berenst, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R. Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Bury, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Iza Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Anne Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorny, Stephen Lienan, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Billbury elf Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacy Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.